wonder as we hear that oh so familiar story of the call of the disciples whether Mark has only recorded half the story. Pause and think for a moment if Jesus were to come to your home or workplace this week knock on the door and say follow me what would your response be? If it's anything like mine it would probably be um yes but <laughs> closely followed by a whole list of questions, a bit like, well, who are you? And just where are you going that you want me to follow along with you? What's your plan? And how do I fit into it? We probably ask these days for a strategic plan. Uh, why are you calling me in particular? Who else have you invited? And what happens to my family, my workmates, my business, and all the people it supports? And then once we catch these people you're teaching us to fish for, what on earth are we supposed to do with them? Well, we know that Mark's gospel of the four gospels is the shortest and the most sparse and spare. It's fast-paced, full of verbs. And Mark's favorite phrase in the Greek seems to be kai euthus, and immediately. And immediately Jesus did this, and immediately Jesus did that. Uh, everything happens immediately. Jesus speaks in verbs, imperatives, repent, believe, follow. And the disciples respond in verbs on cue. They left, they followed, they did exactly as they were called. And it all seems just a wee bit slick. Was it really that simple, that straightforward? I think I'm actually more comfortable with Luke's call story in Luke 5, where Jesus gives fishing instructions to the bunch of fishermen and Simon engages in a bit of argy-bargy with Jesus about who of the two of them actually knows about fishing. You can imagine, you know, Jesus, you're only a carpenter's son. <coughs> Ours is the skill to harvest the deep. But finally, Simon is compelled to acquiesce in the power of Jesus' authority and then is overwhelmed with awe at that huge catch of fish and the authority and creative power they see in Jesus who stands before them. If indeed Jesus was a carpenter's son from inland Nazareth, he came and sought out those fishermen by the Sea of Galilee and spoke to them in a language that they could resonate with and respond to. He framed their call in a way that honoured who they were and what their life experience was and their skills were already. And he said to them, I'm going to build on those skills and use you to bring another harvest. And this time in the lives of people, you will fish for people. And then he uses another lovely word. And I've always loved that when Jesus meets James and John, uh, the word that Mark uses to say what they were doing was that they were sitting, mending their nets. And of course, that was a very skilled and important uh, part of fishing. Katatitso is the, is the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians to talk about what church leaders do in equipping God's people for works of service. So my calling is to mend nets, and I, I quite like that image. It's like the mending, restoring, repairing process goes on in us first, God's people. 
that we may then share in God's work of bringing healing and restoring to others. And I guess as we become less holy, full of holes, thinking of my knitting, uh, we grow more holy and whole, H-O-L-Y and W-H-O-L-E in Christ. And one way that happens is being part of the net together. Probably these days we talk about being part of the network together and networking. Uh, my knitting uh, sometimes has to be handed over to an expert knitting to fix. And sometimes I'll have a hole there. And that expert knitter will take it and do amazing things with it in front of me so that you wouldn't even know that there'd been a hole there or that I'd dropped any stitches at all. And so that whole garment comes to wholeness. And I think in the same way, the body of Christ becomes more whole and more networked and more stitched together uh, in love as we share life together through better or worse. And that is what Jesus was offering his disciples and offers us today. And that's a really fulfilling call. And I think we can imagine, too, for these brand new disciples, there was a bit of a draw and excitement um, you know, some of that repetitive, boring, you know, every work has its smell and, you know, mess of the fish and all that stuff. You can imagine they were quite excited. And for us, we might think, well, actually, I'd be really happy to leave behind the housework that you just have to keep doing over and over again, or the lawns or the emails that flood into my inbox when I come back from holiday or the, the bills and the deadlines. But we might say, well, hang on a moment. Just what did Zebedee, father of James and John, Think of the two lads upping sticks and off we go. And okay, we see uh, and we hear, Mark tells us, that there were some hired uh, men, there were some other crew who uh, were there in the boat to pick up the slack. And obviously uh, this particular family business was obviously uh, well enough off to have a few hired folk. And But I think Zebedee probably was still wondering, I was expecting to hand on my family business to the boys, and, you know, here they are going off after this wandering preacher. Where will it end? And when we come to Simon and Andrew, we don't hear anything about hired crew for their family business. Uh, and later on, actually, in the same first chapter of Mark, we hear that Simon has a mother-in-law. So we extrapolate from that. Presumably, he has a wife and quite probably children. And here lies the mystery of those questions we'd like to ask, uh, and, and Mark didn't put in his gospel. Um, how did Peter's family get on while he's following around after Jesus? Did he pop home occasionally? Um, what did Peter's wife think of all this? We're not told. But later on in Mark's gospel, Jesus will recognize that real cost of discipleship, including to family and he will say there's no one who's left house or brothers and sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, family, fields and persecutions, he adds in, and in the age to come, eternal life. Well, last week we were reading in John's Gospel, and that first chapter of John also sheds some light, I think, on the possible relationships of these early disciples. It seems quite likely that a number of those who came to follow Jesus were, first of all, disciples of John the Baptist. It was not at all uncommon 
for rabbis to have their sort of group of followers or fans and are still uh, the same way today uh, within the people of God uh, and within Judaism. And indeed, some think that Jesus himself may first of all have been a disciple of John the Baptist and was drawn out there into the wilderness. But it's only uh, at the point of John's arrest by Herod Antipas that we see Jesus stepping forth. Remember last week we heard about Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, and then sadly John is arrested. And this seems to trigger, this is the moment uh, that the Spirit drives Jesus to take up his own public ministry. The time is fulfilled. That special kairos moment, the special time of God's initiative and action, when God's reign, God's kingdom is drawing near and being shone forth in Jesus himself and in his words and actions. St. John's Gospel suggests that there actually might have been some friendships and relationships among these disciples already. We're not talking about big areas geographically. They could have known each other already, and including Jesus. But still, actually, sometimes it's harder when it's someone you've been to school with or someone you think you know quite well, and then suddenly something brand new comes from them. And suddenly you've got someone who's doing something unexpected and taking authority and calling people to follow him. And you, you may recall in Nazareth, you know, what, what's he doing, this upstart? Isn't he Joseph's son? And, but here we see it's a challenge to these new disciples to take that relationship with Jesus to a deeper level and in a new direction and a call to follow Jesus' lead now. That was a bit of a challenge and a challenge to those relationships. And Mark here portrays it as something that just happens immediately. No problem, no issues. Willingly, nothing at all, no problem. And yet the rest of Mark's gospel, the next 15 chapters, will not flinch from showing us that it wasn't always an easy ride. And Mark will also tell of the times when the disciples argue with each other blatantly about who's the most important and the greatest, when they lack faith, when they fail Jesus miserably, culminating, of course, in their desertion of Jesus at Gethsemane and at the cross, Judas' betrayal, Peter's denial. Yet at the cross, we will see the faithfulness of the women disciples, not mentioned in the first chapter of Mark, but Mark uses the same verbs to describe them, followed. These women followed Jesus and ministered to him, their discipleship service words. And those same women, after the resurrection, are given the words by the angels that will bring such hope to those defeated disciples. Go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him alive, just as he told you. You might wonder about those two words, and Peter. Why are they put in there? Tradition has it that Mark's gospel, was, uh, that Mark was with the apostle Peter. Mark, we think, is John Mark. Sometimes he's got the longer name. But we think that in the 60s, the early 60s, he was with Peter in Rome. And he was like his scribe or his servant, if you like. And that actually Mark is recording and writing down for us Peter's memories. We get Peter's version of Jesus' gospel, Jesus' story, but it's not sanitized. Uh, surprisingly, we might think 
Simon Peter does not actually give this wonderful picture of himself. He exposes every fault through that gospel. He doesn't try and sort of, what would we say, Photoshop it, um, as we would say these days. And so it's very important that after the resurrection, after all Peter's denials in there, go tell the disciples and Peter, and even Peter, we might say, that Jesus has risen and wants to see you and wants to restore you. Going right back to the very place where you were first called on that lakeshore, and we have that lovely account of Jesus recommissioning of Peter in the same place. Go back to that same place and now start again, despite the failures, new beginnings. So I wonder how you're feeling as we hear these familiar readings, the call of Jesus again, and we are called as we start another year. And we might say, well, actually, Jesus, we're in the same place as last year, and we're not even very sure that we're going to be able to go anywhere this year. Um, it's very uncertain, isn't it? It's all very tentative. And we just don't know where things are heading. We pray, we trust, we go on in faith. But can we ask God also to call us again just where we are, like those fisher folk were, on the beach, in their life already, in their jobs, with all their existing skills and experiences, but be open to God calling in a new direction or to a new path, something new for this year. It's always a prayer that I make. God, make something new, some new beginning for this year. It's scary, but it's also exciting. I'm excited by our own Vicar Mark's description of Olive Lawson's new venture. You might have read about it in the Connect uh, email on Friday with the English language class, and I know some of you uh, are very involved in that ministry already. But this year, uh, as well as the class, there's going to be a meal offer, a lovely opportunity, just like Messy Church, to get alongside, to practice those English skills, and to build networks, fishing nets, to mend holes and build relationships. That's so important. And then Olive has received a government training grant, which is excellent, to help new immigrants gain job skills, interview skills, all those things that can help them to find jobs, which is so vital uh, within a new country for their survival, economic survival, of course, but also that whole sense of dignity and self-esteem that you're contributing something to this new land. And so maybe if God touches your heart, maybe there's some experience or skill you've got that can help Olive in this new uh, opportunity. She's been given by our government to actually get out there uh, and bring a new dimension to our ministry and our outreach. So maybe God will call some of us to help with that this year. We just heard a tiny piece of 1 Corinthians 7, and it's one of those quite challenging chapters. But Paul seems to say to us in 1 Corinthians 7, sit lightly, even to your relationships, even to your normal ways of operating, because the times are urgent. And in his time, we think probably he expected Jesus' return in glory to be quite imminent. And he was thinking things are all going to be tied up and done and dusted, and we need to be uh, on, on the ready, on tiptoe, if you like, for that. And, of course, we say, well, P uh, Paul, here we are 2,000 years later. And yet, I think this last year has also been, our, almost our worlds have been turned upside down 
there's a new urgency about how we care for each other and for our world. And we have been having to make very deliberate choices and some new choices about how we live. So I think that urgency has almost come back to us uh, about how we choose to live in our world. And I hope we'll hold on to that, uh, that sense on the one hand of the urgency of responding to Jesus' call, of having our ears tuned to what God might say to us of new beginnings, but also God's faithfulness, God's undergirding uh, faithfulness. So as we go uh, through this year, we'll be in the Gospel of Mark pretty much most of the year. This is our lectionary gospel this year. And I pray that as we do that, um, we'll hear the gospel of action, a gospel of verbs, we'll be prodded a bit and challenged, but it's also the gospel of mending nets, hold on to that image, of bringing healing, of fixing holes, of making connections, of that long haul of discipleship and of Jesus undergirding faithfulness through it all, never giving up on his disciples, uh, just as God never gives up on us. I want to end with a little prayer that I actually put on our Facebook page this week, but it comes from the Church of Scotland, and it's um, framed around a piece of knitting, and it just picks up that image. Loving God, thank you that you are with us in the highs and lows of life, when we're busy and when we're still, when we believe with all our hearts and when we're barely hanging on by our fingertips to our faith. You create and you recreate. You call us, you mend us, you knit us together, again and again and again. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.